listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. The following is an untitled insert that occurs on the very first page of the 1987 book Communion, A True Story by Whitley Strieber. When you read this incredible story, do not be too skeptical. Somewhere in your own past, there may be some lost hour or strange recollection. That means you also have had this experience. This book is about forming a new relationship with the unknown. Instead of shunning the darkness, we can stare straight into it with an open mind. When we do that, the unknown changes. Fearful things become understandable, and a truth is suggested. The enigmatic presence of the human mind winks back from the dark. Welcome back to the Spectral Skull Session. I'm your host, Dane. Today we are exploring the life and works of the man who made abductions and greys household concepts. Whitley Strieber, currently 78 years old, is best known for his book Communion, published February 1987, that book sold over 2 million copies and was on the New York Times bestseller list for six months. In 1989, it became a major motion picture starring Christopher Walken. And Communion led Streeper to become a cultural icon, the focus of serious medical, journalistic, and academic inquiry. It also became the first in 15 nonfiction books Streeper has written dealing with The Visitors. Strieber's preferred term for the beings that he is continuing to encounter in his life. I count three different kinds of creatures. I count the greys, kobolds, and a hat-wearing robot. We'll get to all of that. Now, this show deals in possibilities, outlining the various explanations for occult, supernatural, and paranormal phenomena. As I began studying Strieber's 15 published nonfiction works, I came across two central themes. First is his claim to have undergone multiple abductions at the hands of the visitors. The uh, episode that you're listening to now will deal with the credibility of these claims and explore some possible explanations for what happened and is happening to Strieber. Uh, a second theme I found in his works is his claim to have undergone spiritual growth as the result of his encounters. I will deal with that in the second episode. Now, Strieber is a writer who writes about himself. So let's start with his story, the story that made him famous. He was born in San Antonio, Texas, educated at the University of Texas at Austin and the London School of Film Technique, graduating in 1968. He worked for several advertising firms in New York City, rising to the level of vice president at one such firm, before leaving in 1977 to become a full-time writer of fiction. 
His early fiction was mostly horror, with eight books written between 1977 and 1987. Strieber's works The Wolfen and The Hunger deal with uh, modern reconceptualization of werewolves and vampires, respectively. Both of those books did very well and were quickly turned into major motion films. Also noteworthy of his early works is War Day, which deals with the aftermath of a limited nuclear exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union. The significance of his early work, he's established himself as a writer of fiction, specifically both horror and science fiction, and that becomes a source of friction between him, the American public, and the literary community when he starts to publish works about his firsthand experiences with mysterious beings and UFOs. So Strieber publishes Communion as a nonfiction firsthand account of his experiences that took place in New York in 1985. And it begins very prosaically in 1985 at the age of 40, Strieber and his wife and young son were spending the fall and winter at an isolated cabin in upstate New York. It was December 26th. He, his wife and son, spend the day cross-country skiing. They were enjoying the new fallen snow and the isolation of their rural hideaway. They had a Christmas goose for dinner, then they went to bed early. Family retired to the second floor, Whitley and Annie sharing a master bedroom and their young son down the hall. That night, Strieber found himself awake in bed and listening to a peculiar whooshing, swirling noise coming from downstairs. He said it was no random creak, no settling of the house, but it sounded as if a large number of people were moving rapidly around. He rose just enough from bed to check the burglar alarm, which showed that the doors and windows were all closed. Surprisingly, he then laid back down in bed, did not investigate further. He explains by saying, quote, if something is strange enough, the reaction is very different from what one would think. The mind seems to tune it out as if by instinct. But if he ignored the noises, the noises would not ignore him. As he tried to fall back asleep, he was disturbed to see his bedroom door slowly starting to move. It appeared to be closing. He then saw a three and a half foot tall person peeking into the room, saying, quote, I could see perhaps a third of the figure, the part that was bending around the door so that it could see me. It had a smooth rounded hat on with an odd sharp rim that jutted out easily four inches on the side. Below this was a vague area. I could not see the face or perhaps I would not see it. A few minutes later, when it was close to the bed, I saw two dark holes for eyes and a black downturning line of a mouth that later became an O. From shoulder to midriff was the visible third of a square plate etched with concentric circles. This plate stretched from just below the chin to the waist area. At the time, I thought it looked like some sort of breastplate or even an armored vest. Beneath it was a rectangular appliance of some type, which covered the lower waist to just above the knee. The next thing he knew, the creature came rushing at him and he blacked out. He then came to and blacked out again several times, each time having a little vignette or snapshot of where he was. He briefly wakes up to find himself lying outside in the woods. He briefly wakes up to find himself in a dirty, cluttered room, which seems to have clothes strewn about. 
at this point, the overwhelming tone of the narration becomes horror. Quote, Whitley ceased to exist. What was left was a body in a state of raw fear so great that it swept about me like a thick, suffocating curtain, turning paralysis into a condition that seemed close to death. I do not think that my ordinary humanity survived the transition to this little room. I died, and a wild animal appeared in my place. He became aware of two distinct creatures on either side of him, and a large gray box was produced. From that box, a creature drew a long needle, and he became aware that the creatures intended to insert that needle into his brain. If I had been afraid before, I now became quite simply crazed with terror. I argued with them. This place is filthy, I remember saying. You'll ruin a beautiful mind. I could imagine my family awakening in the morning and finding me a vegetable. A great sadness overtook me. I do not recall screaming, but evidently I was doing so, because I remember the next exchange quite clearly. One of them, I think it was a woman, said, What can we do to help you stop screaming? The voice was remarkable. It was definitively oral. That is to say, I heard it rather than sensed it. It has a subtly electronic tone to it, and accents flat and Midwestern. My reply was unexpected. I heard myself say, you could let me smell you. I was embarrassed. That is not a normal request, and it bothered me. But it made a great deal of sense, as I have afterward realized. The one to my right replied, Oh, okay, I can do that, in a similar voice, speaking very rapidly, and held his hand against my face. There was a slight scent of cardboard to it, as if the sleeve of a coverall that was partly pressed against my face was made of some substance like paper. The hand itself had a faint but distinctly organic sourness in its odor. It was not a human smell, but it was unmistakably the smell of something alive. There was a subtle overtone that seemed a little like cinnamon, and then with a bang it was over. The needle had been inserted and withdrawn. At this point, he can move a little bit. He raises his head and looks around and finds himself in an operating theater with three rows of benches on one side. And sitting on those benches watching him are tiny creatures with large round eyes. He says, I was aware that I had seen four different types of figures. The first was a small robotic-like being that had led the way into my bedroom he was followed by a large group of short, stocky ones in the dark blue coveralls. They had wide faces appearing either gray or dark blue in that light with glittering deep-set eyes, pug noses, and broad, somewhat human mouths. Inside the room, I encountered two types of creatures that Dot did not look at all human. The most provocative of these was about five feet tall, very slender and delicate, with extremely prominent and mesmerizing black slanted eyes. This being had an almost vestigial mouth and nose. The huddled figures in the theater were somewhat smaller, with similarly shaped heads but round black eyes like large buttons. Again, Streber fades in and out of consciousness, and again he's in that dirty clothing-strewn room, and this is where he becomes the victim of a rectal probe. He says, uh, basically, the creatures show him a long, scaly object with wires attached to it. They insert it into his rectum, he says, quote, at the time I had the impression I was being raped, and for the first time, I felt anger. When the thing is withdrawn, the creature gestures to it in what seems to be a warning, and he says, but what? I never found out. And that's the end 
of his first and most vivid abduction report. According to Strieber, he woke up the next day and he didn't remember any of this. Instead, he had a vague memory of a barn owl staring at him through the window. He became extremely uneasy. He became a difficult person to coexist with. He began fighting with his family, snapping at his son. His neighbors came to visit, and he started to blame them for not being able to sleep, saying that they had uh, been driving a snowplow around in the middle of the night. And they said, uh, there's no way, not a snowplow, but a um, snowmobile. They said, there's no way we could operate a snowmobile. The woods are too thick. So he seems to have the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. He can't concentrate. He seems to have something like the flu. By mid-January, his wife starts to notice articles about UFOs in the local paper. And he picks up a copy of a book his brother-in-law had given him about aliens and UFOs. He says he didn't believe in aliens at that time, but he did pick up the book for some reason. And when he gets to the end and reads about the archetypical alien abduction, he starts to sense a connection. He then turns to a fellow artist, a man by the name of Bud Hopkins, who is sort of the pioneer, unacknowledged pioneer of abduction research. In 1981, he published the book Missing Time. In 1987, he will publish a book, Intruders, that's contemporaneous with Strieber's Communion. So Strieber basically uses his clout as a former ad executive, a man who was well-known in New York City, uh, to call up Bud Hopkins direct. He just, Or maybe back in the 80s, you could just call famous people on the phone directly. Somehow he gets through to Bud Hopkins and starts to tell him, What's going on with him? And Bud Hopkins arranges for him to see a hypnotherapist. Through the hypnotherapist, Strieber begins to recover many memories of abduction experiences, some going back to childhood and involving his own father being taken. He also has more encounters with strange creatures as his life goes on. He says it goes on. The, the last I heard was that he says it continued into 1994. My understanding is that 94 is the termination of the abduction-type experiences, though he continues to report a variety of strange encounters. And he often emphasizes encountering small blue creatures with ugly pug-like faces that he describes in later works as kobolds, a word that he takes from European fairy lore. So through hypnotherapy, Strieber begins to feel that all his life, he and his family have been having these encounters with the visitors. The book Communion has a middle section that is transcripts of some of the regressive therapy sessions that Strieber and his family underwent. They didn't subject the son to therapy, but, but they, he says that his son spontaneously told him he had a team of doctors come visit him at night who said, don't be afraid, we will not hurt you, over and over. This is not the only kind of visitation that the family reports. Strieber also recounts an encounter with what seems to be a four-foot creature with a sheet over its head. They said they thought it was maybe a child that had gotten into the house that was pulling a joke on them because it, was, it looked like it was about the height of a four-year-old, but it didn't speak and it ran around with a sheet over its head. They were unable to catch it. They decided it was not really a child. Strieber, his wife, and also a babysitter 
supposedly encountered this phenomenon because at one point they had a they went on a trip they went so the streamers went somewhere for the night actually and um the they came home to find the babysitter's mother was there and that was the story she said about why her daughter had just left on the job her daughter had said there was a like a little person with a sheet over its head running around the house she was so freaked out that she called her mom and just quit now streber has a lot of speculation in all of his works about what the visitors are it's kind of a big theme of his works is that he doesn't have a particular view that he's completely committed to but he has a lot of speculation in communion alone he says they might be hive-minded insect beings possibly beings that are living among us and that we haven't recognized yet but they might also be from another planet or planets and they could also be interdimensional or time travelers but he also thinks they could be from within us suggesting some kind of jungian archetype or even a tulpa something that's been made real because people believe in it he also says it could be a side effect of a natural phenomenon or it could be an aspect of the human species and says maybe we do have an afterlife but not quite in the way people suggest maybe you and i are larva i.e an aspect of the human species so uh, i think here he's saying they could be dead people they could be ghosts that came to visit him or like ghosts from the future or it could be ghosts of neanderthals a major predominant theme um, is him pushing back on the idea that we should think that these things are nuts and bolts in the in the in the ufologist sense that they're flying saucers and metallic spaceships from another planet so he's aware of that possibility and he is resistant to it he has specifically stated in many interviews how disappointed he is that when people read communion they took him as being a nuts and bolts ufology person He's frustrated that people overlooked the spiritual connotations of the title communion and the poem that I read you at the beginning that ends with that line about the human mind winking back at us from the dark. But here's the thing, Whitley Streber. You printed this book with a big old alien head on the front cover. That's all people are ever going to remember. And also in the defense of our quasi-literate American public, there is a long section in the middle of this book where he delves into the nuts and bolts UFO literature, speculating about a possible covert war between the Air Force and flying saucers. And um, so you can't really put all the blame on us, Whitley Strieber. So communion was an explosive hit in the United States. And one of the big things that came across to me, so many people say that when they saw this paperback book at the bookstores or at the grocery store just seeing the cover had a terrorizing effect on them people will say i saw it when i was eight and i had nightmares gary nolan who is a stanford uh researcher and a big ufoology guy right now he has said in an interview that seeing communion at a bookstore triggered him to remember that he was an abductee one of the things that i think make communion such a good book besides whitley streber's psychological realism there's a real element of sincerity it feels like he's being sincere he's very fearful there's a lot in this book about being afraid 
there's a lot in this book that makes him come across as weak. And I think that makes him seem sincere because, you know, if, if you had a fake UFO experience you wanted to tell people about, I think it'd be natural to be self-aggrandizing. And well, I stood up to the aliens, right? And I scared them away or I yelled at them. I protested, you can't do this to me. Well, he does say that you can't do this to me. But, um, but it's kind of like pleading and sad and kind of pathetic in that scene. The anal probe, uh, so he's been so made fun of for that. He often says that South Park destroyed his reputation or became a huge embarrassment for him. I mean, he says explicitly, I had the impression I was being raped. He never backs down from that. To make such a claim in public is to make oneself quite vulnerable. I imagine it would have been even worse for a man in the 1980s to have claimed such a thing. There's also some real evidence to support the story he tells. The implant. He says that he discovered an implant in his ear and tried to have it surgically removed, but the implant moved away from the surgeon. Now, he even gave an interview on Coast to Coast AM, the late night radio talk show hosted by Art Bell, to talk about this, and his surgeon was supposed to call in. I don't know if the surgeon ever called in because I was only able to find the first part of that old episode, but he says, and Art Bell says, like, we're waiting for Whitley Strieber's surgeon to call in. But uh, a journalist, Ed Conway, investigated Strieber and checked out Strieber's various claims about doctors and implants, and his book, Report on Communion, is very supportive, saying that he looked into all this and he concluded that Strieber was telling the truth. Jacques Vallée, the French scientist and one of the head UFOologists of our time, he met Strieber and talked to him, and he reports that he believes Strieber's story. William Burroughs, the beatnik countercultural writer, met Strieber and thought he was sincere. I would be remiss to neglect to mention that Strieber's publishing house insists that they had an encounter uh, when the book came out. They went down to the local New York bookseller, to check out the stand. There was going to be like a communion display stand. They wanted to just check it out. One of them went down and said he encountered three men in trench coats wearing dark sunglasses, paging through communion and mocking it, saying that, you know, he got this part wrong. He got that part wrong. And they were reading it out loud and then making fun of it. And uh, they looked at him over their glasses and he saw that they had those giant almond eyes. Would a reputable publishing house lie about such a thing in order to sell books? And then the last thing I think is important is that the book triggered thousands of letters, sounds like thousands of letters a week. So Whitley Strieber has said that they just got del deluged with letters to the point where his wife made it a full-time job to go through them all. She even had to hire another secretary to work full-time to go through the letters. And those letters are now stored at Rice University and their archives of the impossible. So it's become an academic and historically significant thing. People writing letters saying, well, this is happening to me. What do you think I should do? Or what do you think about this? Do you think this is a real encounter with the visitors? So in my view, Streeper's vulnerability, credibility, and resonance with public audience speak to his sincerity. Now, a person can speak sincerely, but still speak falsely if they are mistaken. And so this leads to the question, should we believe Strieber's story? 
uh, one of the methods that guides this podcast is a return to the Renaissance practice of ad fontes, reading source texts for yourself. And that really paid off in my research on this episode, because what I noticed in reading Strieber's Communion and his other works is this guy has an unreliable memory. He says he didn't believe in aliens and thought science had resolved the, in the issue. But I found in one of his later works him saying that when he was a teenager, he built a device that he thought was an anti-gravity device. And then when it started a fire, he was afraid the aliens who had given him the idea were angry at him. And I also think it's unlikely that he really believed that aliens were not a real topic uh, worthy of serious inquiry. Because why did his brother-in-law give him a book on the topic for Christmas? Maybe his brother-in-law knew him better than he knew himself. But it gets worse. Um, his own wife describes Whitley as being a little kooky. It seems like her response to him is bemused in the hypnotherapist transcripts in communion. The therapist is talking to her and she says that at one point her husband reported a giant crystal in the backyard. The therapist says something to the effect of like, shouldn't you have gone and checked that out? That sounds like something worth investigating. And she says, well, Whitley says a lot of things. And the therapist is like, well, well, what? And she says, well, last year, he said he was floating around the bedroom. And the therapist says, do you think your husband needs to see a psychiatrist? And she goes, no, he can handle these things on his own. He also is on the record as having said that he dropped out of college in Austin, Texas in the late 60s because of a mass shooting that that he claims he ran away from the shooter and he saw another student die. But his own mother has contradicted that, saying he was not on campus when the shooting occurred. He also describes a fugue state that occurred while studying abroad, where he took two weeks off of college to travel around Europe, but then lost track of time until they kicked him out and they had put his belongings in storage and he has no idea where he was. He was in a fugue state on walkabout continental Europe. In a later post-communion book, he talks about how when he was a child, he was in love with one of his teachers and secretly visited her in the middle of the night. But then on the very next page says, he doesn't think that actually happened because at age 11, he would have been too afraid to cross town at night. His explanation for these bizarre stories is that his experiences with the visitors have led to these screen memories that make it hard for him to recall exactly what did happen, and also that he's been dealing with all this anxiety that he hasn't been able to place. And so all his life, he's been telling these stories to try to explain to other people why he acts so strangely. But now he knows he's been acting strangely because of the stress of the visitors. So take that however you want to take it. Sometimes he is really stretching with his stories. He has one about uh, around the time of communion. There was a feral man boy living in the woods around their cabin. This feral man boy had a little nest in the woods and he was chain smoking cigarettes and the smell of his cigarettes would follow them back into their home, scaring them so badly they put up floodlights. Later, when they sold the, con they sold the cabin and moved to a condo in uh, San Antonio, the feral man boy follows them, bringing a friend to squat in an apartment across from their condo. When Whitley reports this to the apartment owner and says, hey, 
there's a squatter in your rental unit. The uh, feral man boy and his partner go door to door around the condo complex trying to sell the man's furniture before disappearing forever. And Whitley says, well, I think he was an alien hybrid who just can't figure out how to coexist with us humans. He just doesn't understand what it means to be human. But uh, I thought it was bizarre that this man boy would follow the family across the country. And so uh, my view, though, I think he's sincere. Now, I don't, I don't trust the content of his experiences, but he doesn't trust the content of his experiences either. So what is happening to him, uh, some theories have been put forward include mostly sleep paralysis is one of the big ones that was popular in the 1980s. But here's the thing I have to say about that. If you ever listen to Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM radio show, very popular 80s, 90s, 2000s, he would do Shadow People episodes. People would call in on the Shadow People episodes. They describe sleep paralysis to the button. And they don't, they don't think they've been abducted by aliens. They call in to talk about Shadow People and they, they talk about waking up and you can't move and you're paralyzed. Even that group of people listening to the Art Bell show or in the Art Bell show, who kinds of people who are more open to a paranormal supernatural interpretation of what's happening to them, even they don't just go, oh, it's alien abductions. What he describes in communion and what alien abductee persons describe is much more intense and disturbing than what you get from people who have sleep paralysis. So maybe sleep paralysis is part of the story, but it, it wouldn't be sufficient. You'd have to add something else to it. Is this mental illness? Could it be that Whitley Strieber is just a mentally ill person? Well, he's had a very successful writing career. He used to be a successful advertising executive. I'm doubtful that he's just mentally ill. And I looked at the abduction research in the psychology field, and I couldn't find a consistent psychological profile of people who have been reporting abductions. You know, some studies said that they're more likely to be uh, suggestible. Other studies said they were more likely to be intrinsically skeptical. I did find one study that was kind of interesting that concluded a combination of pre-existing New Age beliefs, episodes of sleep paralysis accompanied by hallucinations, and hypnotic memory recovery may foster alien beliefs and memories that one has been abducted by space aliens. So that is a sort of uh, multiple, right, multiple different factors together might cause you to have this sort of experience. One very interesting medical research paper I found points out that abduction reports sound shockingly similar to what it would be like to be operated on in a modern hospital. And the researcher speculates that what if people are being traumatized by surgery and then they're remembering surgery, but because of the anesthesia, they can't form a normal memory and reintegrate it into their life experiences. So they end up with this weird, traumatic, like supernatural, paranormal type memory. That is a very interesting hypothesis. I think it would be very easy to falsify. All you have to do is find a couple credible abductees who have never had surgery. So interesting thing to look into there if that's what you want to do. In the case of Whitley Strieber, he does say that when he was a child, he had a period of severe illness. He also had polio. I'm not sure if those are both, because I've read about it in different places, if it's both the same experience, but he came close to death 
I don't know if he was hospitalized, but it, that might be the kind of thing, if it happened to you at a young age, would become an enduring life trauma. One of my favorite theories, in the sense that it was really entertaining, comes from the conspiracy literati. For many years, there's been a minority opinion that Strieber was the victim of a military mind control program to trick him into thinking he was abducted by aliens. It's developed in a book called The Controllers by Martin Cannon, also um, sort of hinted at in Mill Labs, colon, Military Mind Control by Helmut and Marion Lammer. These books very disturbingly paint a picture in which the consciousness expansion research of the 1960s and 70s was just the tip of the iceberg and a massive, sprawling mind control program carried out by the U.S. intelligence community. Um, it's so interesting that I'm going to do a side episode, like a side quest, to go into some of that, because I think they're on to something about some of the mind control stuff, because we know MKUltra was a real CIA program to do mind control. But could military mind control be the reason why people believe they're being abducted by aliens? What would be the motive there to create a coterie of UFO devotees who can then be manipulated by the intelligence community? Maybe. But I think that there's just too many people who are reporting alien abduction. The Harvard psychologist John Mack, who takes UFO abductions very seriously, in the 90s, he found that as many as 3.5 million Americans have experienced an abductee event. So 3.5 million Americans. If 3.5 million of us had been kidnapped by black helicopter flying CIA agents, there'd be like black helicopters everywhere. I think we'd all kind of be on to it at this point. That's just too many people, I think. And so what, what are we to make of all this? Well, John Mack, the Harvard psychologist I already mentioned, he has written that there are often corroborating reasons to take abductee reports seriously. One is the implants. They often these people have some kind of metal object in their body that can be physically verified. I don't know how common it is for people to have foreign objects embedded in their bodies. I could see how it could happen to you. You could get a piece of metal in your hands. Well, if you worked with metal, uh, you could get, I think you could get little rocks in your body as a child, or you could just get fall and, you know, get a rock in your skin and maybe it could migrate. But I just don't know. I think that's the kind of thing somebody should be able to produce baseline information on how common it is to have foreign objects embedded in your body. The other thing is he says there are often neighbors reporting UFOs when a person is abducted. They'll be like people in the area will be reporting UFOs. And there, you know, um, chicken and egg question about, well, could it be that the reports of UFOs are what causes the person to later interpret themselves as having been an abductee? So that's a difficult thing to tease out. But, you know, John Mack, respected psychologist, took the thing very seriously. Edit. Mac is actually a clinical psychiatrist and Pulitzer Prize winner, as well as a Harvard professor. The hypothesis that I find most exciting is the one I'm going to reserve for the next episode. And that is, I think it's possible that people who are abductees are having a very specific kind of spiritual experience 
kind of spiritual experience that has already been delineated by Professor of Psychiatry Rick Strassman, who has a neurobiological model that separates out at least two different kinds of spiritual episodes. And I want to explore Strieber's own spiritual practices and the evidence that there may be a distinct kind of spiritual episode that explains what's happening with abductees in part two. If you're interested in Communion and Whitley Strieber, but you don't want to commit to reading the paperback, I recommend watching the movie Communion. It's free on YouTube. It's entertaining to see a younger Christopher Walken hamming it up. And music by Eric Clapton. It is very much something from the 1980s. Whitley Strieber wrote the screenplay for it himself. I think the movie does an excellent job of capturing the message that I'm getting from reading Whitley Strieber's nonfiction works. I'll explain that in part two of this series. And so that's it. I um, really appreciate you listening. I hope you learned something about Whitley Strieber. Until next time, stay strange and stay sane.